great to see such a wonderful turnout. We will be uh, talking about how really useful CBT is um, for a number of disorders today. <clears throat> so I'm really thrilled to see so many of you here wanting to use these skills. Um, so it, it's great. And I will have to say, I've done um, many, many, many CBT groups over the years. And every time I do one, I assign, uh, whatever I assign the homework to, I do it myself. And uh, so I know it's actually really powerful and wonderful. So I'm happy to be here um, talking to you about CBT. I'm going <clears> to <throat> begin by giving you an overview of kind of the basic techniques that we use in CBT. How many of you here have had some CBT training? A lot, a lot. So it might be review. Does it feel okay to just review them for those of you? Yeah, just go over so you know. And then we'll talk about uh, specifics of anxiety care, the kind of things that we do around anxiety, which, uh, you know, the major issue around anxiety is exposure. Uh, when we get anxious about something, if we avoid it, we just get more and more anxious. So we really have to expose people. And that's a hard thing to do, and we're going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, DBT, which is CBT-ish, a little different, and how well, we work around suicide prevention um, with DBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy is the most researched therapy um, out there. So there's been over 325 published outcome studies, and um, it's been adapted for many, many, many disorders, and it's generally structured and short-term. So you sort of know going into it <clears throat> how many sessions that will do. And I actually think it's a little bit more difficult to learn than the other therapies. So if, uh, I say this because I look at the the big randomized trials that have done treatment over a number of settings, and you'll see big variation in outcomes related to the setting. So if you have really good trainers and people who pick it up well, in one place patients do really well, and they do less well in other places. And I think it's more exaggerated than some of the other therapies, which leads me to believe it's not um, super easy to learn. But um, <clears throat> the main ideas about CBT are, the first one is that dysfunctional thinking um, predisposes to depression and anxiety. And the, the way this works, which is interesting, some, <clears throat> some research I did really early in my career, um, CBT was just coming along and we were looking at CBT uh, and this idea that, uh, that the way you think about things really affects your mood. And, uh, what happened, though, when you looked at the literature, if somebody with people who were depressed reported a lot of this dysfunctional thinking. If you treated them with medication and they were less depressed, they didn't show so much dysfunctional thinking. So at first we thought, wow, that theory is gone. Um, but then I noticed in myself and other patients that actually our tendency to develop dysfunctional thinking happens when you're in a bad mood. So we did some research early on showing if you brought people into the lab who either had a predisposition, sort of a history of depression, weren't depressed at the time, or no history of depression, and you gave them a little mood, you measured the dysfunctional thinking they were equal. If you give them a mood induction, 
Uh, we were a little bit mean. We made them watch a sad movie, think about a sad time in their life. And then you measure this, their dysfunctional thinking. The depressed group had uh, people with a history of depression became more dysfunctional than those without. So what, what it seems to be is if um, we all have some gradient of being um, vulnerable to depression, right? So uh, I, I had a patient once who had such a bad background that literally anything could send him into a depression versus, uh, let's think about Viktor Frankl. He was actually imprisoned in, uh, in a Nazi camp and he managed to keep himself together. So, you know, he's kind of the other end. So somewhere along that line. So usually if you look at depressions, most depressions are preceded by negative things. So. Uh, I've trained a lot of people uh, with depression over my career, and they'll say to me, well, this happened and I was okay. Then this happened and I was really struggling, then this happened and I got depressed. So what happens is as your mood, you know, you just fluctuate, your mood fluctuates with negative life events. People who are uh, not prone to depression don't tend to get depressed, and people who are prone, those negative thoughts can really get them depressed. So, um, so let's give an example. I saw a patient who uh, came in to see me after a breakup of um, an engagement. She had been engaged, and, um, and uh, the, the engagement ended. And so she started saying to me, um, she came in saying to me things like, you know, I, there's something wrong with me. Uh, no one will ever love me. Um, you know, these kind of super negative thoughts that, um, that really got her very depressed. She felt um, because this ended, she would be alone the rest of her life. And um, about the same time, I was actually uh, going back to visit my family, and my niece had just uh, broken an engagement. So I thought when I got there, she's probably going to feel sad, I'm going to have to take care of her. She was all bouncy and fine when I got there, and I said, you know what, you just broke up, uh, what's going on? And she said, I came this close to finding the right guy. Next time, it's going to happen for me. You know, so you think about the different way we sort of view or think about things has a huge impact on the mood. Um, so thinking is highly related to mood, and thinking is related to activities you engage in. So when we're in a good mood and have a lot of activities, all of us tend to engage in pleasant activities. We do things that are are fun and enjoyable, but what happens when your mood goes down? Who knows what what happens to you? Know, your mood yeah, you don't want to get out of bed, right? You know, you just don't. You think, oh, I wouldn't enjoy it anyway. Uh, no need, blah blah blah. So you have very little energy. So uh, pleasant activities go down, and um, and then thinking is also very much related. Uh, to how you interact with others. So again, if you're in a negative mood and you're thinking negatively, uh, the literature shows how much do people want to be around depressed people? <laughs> Not at all. Actually, there's been a number of studies where you have somebody uh, pretend to be depressed and be in a social gathering and people really walk away or avoid you. Or, you know, also when you're negative and you have this, these biases, you think negative things. So, you know, you end up with, with uh, poor relationships as well. And we also know that people who are less assertive are more likely to get depressed. So there's probably also um, 
You know, people are being assertive in their relationships. And social support, we all need that. We're all social human beings. We need that kind of support in our lives. So um, the idea of CBT is to shore all this up, to help people not think so negatively, to interact with others better, and to, uh, to engage in more pleasant activities, do more fun things. So CBT treats depression by changing these dysfunctional thinking that uh, one of our patients says trap, uh, they're trap thoughts, they're thoughts that trap you into feeling bad. So we really try to help patients identify the accuracy of their thinking. Um, so um, an example, if I'm too ill to work, I'm useless, would be something I've seen many people uh, whose self-esteem really depended a lot on uh, their employment. Suddenly they're unemployed and they now feel uh, useless. Um, so we, we would help them think um, about, although I'm unable to work, you know, maybe I'm a good friend, I'm a good community member, there are many things about me that are still positive. Uh, my, my worth does not depend um, uh, on my work or uh, in some cases we see people whose mood really plummets after an illness because they're not able to do things they used to do and uh, yet we still realize these are very uh, useful people who have many good things in their lives. So, so we really work on changing those dysfunctional thoughts, um, helping people realize how their thinking is affecting their mood and how, you know, oftentimes when you actually think, you know, when you get the thought out that, that is driving it, they don't believe it anymore or they can, you know, quickly find an alternative. It's almost like we have these scripts playing in our head and we're not even um, all that aware of them. You know, we probably get them from uh, many, 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 many places and maybe you all can recognize. I know um, I, I had... Um, uh, a very critical mom. My mom uh, tended to, to be very critical. And so uh, when I go to do something, if I make a mistake, boy, I am dumping on myself right away. And uh, it's really helpful to me to have friends who remind me that I don't need to be so tough on myself and I'll make mistakes. So you know, we have these scripts from, uh, from many places in our lives and you know, we're not even aware of them, um, the, the way we might put ourselves down or think about things that uh, be, become you know, really negative in a way that hurts us. So we, we help um, patients think differently. So we also think about getting people to do more uh, pleasant activities. Uh, what's wrong with that? That like we all should be making sure. I've always had the uh, mantra, uh, if I work hard, I'm going to play hard. And um, it turns out it's really good for your mood to do pleasant things. I mean, it just makes sense. The more you're doing things that are pleasant and enjoyable, um, so, um, we, and when you're in a negative mood, again, you're less likely to get yourself to do these pleasant things. Um, things that cut people off from their pleasant activities, we see oftentimes, again, loss of work. Many people do a lot of pleasant activities, go to lunch, um, you know, go out after work with people. Um, when, when they're no longer working, they can lose that uh, life partner. Someone uh, loses the person that they did all their activities with, and then. It's really easy to find themselves not doing pleasant activities, or again, um, an illness can keep people from doing pleasant things. All these <coughs> can then really lead to these lower level of pleasant activities and lower mood. Um, and when I talk about pleasant activities, I mean, I, I like to think about a big vacation, and I love those, but it's really those everyday things that we do that are pleasant um, that can make us feel better. Um, so 
I had a, a patient who really was uh, very impoverished, um, and she, uh, she, she, the one thing she had kept over the years, she had this nice little china cup that was really nice. And in the morning, she would make herself a cup of coffee and pull a chair over by the window, the sun, and listen to the noises outside. You know, just those really simple things can make a big difference in adding um, something pleasant in your life. CBT works uh, towards improving interactions with other pe people. Again, ne negative thinking can really get in our way of relating to others. Um, so we, we really work with people to improve their social network and improve their assertiveness. Um, uh, a huge issue um, for uh, people not being assertive when we're not assertive, we, we don't get what we want from other people. I think. Um, a lot of people believe that if other people like us, they should know what we want. Boy, that is one of the biggest fallacies um, that ever existed. You know, you know, oftentimes it's very hard for us to see the other person's point of view. So, you know, we have to tell people what we what we want and need. Uh, and there, it's no guarantee being assertive is no guarantee you'll get it, but you're way more likely to get it if you ask um, than if you don't. Um, and we also really work on improving problem solving between people. So we, uh, a lot of times we think the problem is the other person and we like to sense that there's a problem between us and um, we, we need to focus on that. Um, and we uh, teach people, we, a certain number of people uh, who are depressed will come in and they'll have had a really bad experience. You know, somebody burns them in some horrible way and they say, I can't trust anyone. And we said, you know, is that true? There's not one trustworthy person in the world? Well, there probably are, but how do you get to know them? So we really encourage uh, people to learn to trust slowly. So, uh, you know, if, if you meet somebody new that seems interesting, uh, meet them somewhere where you have transportation there uh, and back, and it's not awful if they don't show up, and if they do show up, that's nice, then, you know, the next time maybe a little more dinner or something, so slowly um, you learn to trust others. So this is the cartoon that we uh, show our patients. We have a manualized version of CBT uh, to kind of show them what the idea of th how thinking affects your mood. So the first guy comes out, it's raining, he's miserable. The second guy comes out, it's exactly the same situation, but um, he's having a blast. So mood, uh, your thinking really, really, really affects your mood. I was uh, like to tell the story that what, uh, really early in my career, I was um, I started my career at, at uh, UCSF in San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco, and um, I had, I got an offer to teach a course at UC Berkeley, and it was a an evening course, and it started at six o'clock. And I couldn't leave San Francisco General Hospital until 5 o'clock. And uh, do you know what's between San Francisco General Hospital and San Francisco and uh, UC Berkeley? Anyway. What? The Bay Bridge. That's right, the Bay Bridge, which is not really the most fun place to be in the evening. So the first time I taught that class, I, well, I, you know, I planned, I planned like how I could dash across 
can't get on the very last exit. You know what exit I would get off? I had it all planned. But I was so anxious about getting there on time that uh, I, w I was miserable. I was sitting in the car like, oh my god, I'm not going to be there. I'm there. You know? Um, I was exhausted by the time I got there because I had completely stressed out the entire way, even though I got there on time. So uh, after that, I mean, I, I warned the class that I might be a few minutes late, wait for me. And after that, I thought, you know, I have a really long day. The only time I can relax at all is inching across this bridge. So like, I put on music, I lean back. You know, and I, I really actually enjoyed that ride across. So I was still st stuck in traffic, but the way I was thinking about it had a huge impact on my mood. So, so we really try to people to teach people to you know examine how you're thinking about things and how that's impacting your mood. So um, we encourage people to um, think back about the time or during the week, the time you feel the worst. Again, we're not so aware of these thoughts when we're in a decent mood, but when you really feel bad is when they come out, and write them down. And then think about, how does this make you feel? And then we work with, uh, is it accurate, is it complete, and is it balanced? And um, you know, if, if you can answer those, you often find, so uh, the example of, if I can't work, I'm useless. You know, is that really accurate? Can you do nothing? Look at you. You got a shower. You made it here today. That's something. Uh, you know, uh, there are many things that you can do. You can read to your grandchild, for example. You know, there are many things you can do. Is it is it complete? Is that a complete thought that I'm useless? No. Uh, it's it's incomplete. I can't work, but there are many other things I can do. And is it balanced? That's very unbalanced. So we ask people to really examine um, those things. We have them write down uh, thoughts that they feel. We also have uh, people, people keep a, a mood scale. So uh, we, we do this for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, have you ever uh, talked to somebody who is really depressed and that you say, oh, you know, what's your mood like during the week? And they'll say, it's terrible. It's the worst it can ever be. Every second of the day of every day of the week. And almost always that is not the case. When you feel bad, it just feels like that. So if we have people keep a mood diary, we really find that even in somebody quite depressed, their mood goes up and down a bit. Um, I just have, I'm working with a young teenager who, um, who tends to come home and go uh, right in her room and not come out. And uh, we have been um, keeping um, a mood scale, and any evening that she does something else, her mood is higher on that day than it would be if she just stays in her room. So it's helping her learn you know, what really affects her mood. So we, we also have people look at what they do um, during the day and what drives their moods up and down. You know, again, we have people look at, one, one thing we, we talk about, uh, Aaron Beck, when he developed CBT, talked about dysfunctional thinking, but that's not a word I ever hear out of any of my patients' mouths. They don't talk about dysfunctional. So we started talking about, is it harmful or helpful? Um, is, the, is that thought something that's harming you or helping you? So I never do anything right is a thought that's probably very harmful and painful. I will never be able to trust people. Again, very painful. Um, a more helpful thought. I made mistakes, but I do many things right. Um, 
a, a more helpful thought. My, my trust has been broken in the past, but I'm working to build relationships with trustworthy people. So uh, we, we really work, again, on helping people change those painful thoughts that, uh, that kind of trap them in a depression. We, we t encourage people to be detectives. I, I had a patient who, uh, was, who was very anxious. He was a, he was a young attorney. He was very anxious, and he came in, and one of his complaints was, you know, I'm just uh, constantly feeling anxious about my career, and it's terrible, and there's something terribly wrong with me because I feel anxious about my career. So I said to him, well, let's, let's be a detective. You know, you work with a lot of other young lawyers. You know a lot of other young attorneys. Why don't you ask them how much of the time they felt anxious about their careers? Uh, so he did. You know what? He didn't feel more anxious than anyone else. When you're uh, a, a young attorney, or um, you know, many of us uh, were anxious early in our careers. My uh, career as a university uh, professor, your your job requirement is to become an international expert. Uh, <laughs> That, that's, you know, that to, to, that's what you have to become. That made me so anxious. It made me crazy. And at first, like, how in the hell am I going to get there? So, um, so being anxious early in your career, not so unusual. So uh, he, um, he felt much better when he didn't see himself as such an outlier and there was something wrong with him about this. It was sort of the state of his work. So he encouraged people to go out and be detectives um, and to... Uh, to, to really uh, find out. So um, we, we treated another patient. This, uh, this guy came in and he said, um, I was the worst father in the world, and I have huge regrets about this. And he, he talked about his parenting. And you know, frankly, I think he was a, a pretty bad dad. It was, it was pretty clear he wasn't very much there for his kids. And, said, well, you know, they're still alive. Why don't you talk to them? Do they speak to you? Well, they do. Oh, you know, call them. So he, he said to them, I, I, I feel like I was bad. I had three sons. And every one of them said, yeah, Dad, you know, you weren't a great dad. But you know, there was this one time you did this, and it was really helpful to me. So uh, he now was able to have a more livable. I, I, I think walking around saying I'm the worst dad in the world was horrible for him. He said, so, you know, I wasn't the dad I would like to be. If I could do it again, I would be better. But at least I was there for my kids at one point. And so it was, it was really helpful to him again to be a detective. Um, so we encourage people then to replace these harmful thoughts um, that um, are getting in the way with something that's more accurate. And we uh, came up with this um, little way to help um, patients think about it. We call it catch it, check it, change it. So catch that thought um, that is affecting you, check it for accuracy, and then see if you can actually change it to something that's more balanced and more reasonable and um, way less painful. So, um, you know, an, another example, I, I treated a young woman who had uh, just gotten married and she came in and she, she was unhappy uh, in her marriage. She just got married and said, well, so, um, so what, what, what's so awful? And she said, you know, I realized after I married him that my husband is this needy guy. He's really needy. 
And I, uh, so I listened to that for a while. We were talking after a while. And I said, well, uh, can you t tell me what, what is needy? Tell me what needy behavior is. She said, well, like, you know, I come home from work. He wants me to come set by him on the couch. He wants to hold my hand. <laughs> Sounding good to me. You know, what? what is this? What's going on here? So it ends up, um, this young woman was one of 12 children in a family whose dad died when she was quite young. And boy, any behavior that required cuddling was not acceptable in that family. You know, the mom just didn't have it in her. So the kids were taught that was needy, bad behavior. So again, we asked her to go around and ask her friends what... Uh, what they defined sitting next to your uh, spouse and holding hands as. And, you know, she realized very quickly that her thoughts about what was needy behavior, you know, it turns out her husband wasn't needy at all. He was just a warm, um, loving guy. So those thoughts can uh, really have a super uh, powerful impact on people. Um, we do see a lot of people with anxiety. Um, mixed with depression. So uh, when we're treating depression and people just have mixed anxiety, uh, one of the things that we hear is they just walk around worrying all the time. Do you guys have patients like that? They're just like a bundle of worry. So we teach this uh, concept, which is, you know, if you're going to worry, do it well. Don't do it while you're doing everything else. You know, that's a mistake. It's, it's not going to go well. It's just going to drive you crazy. So if you think it's important to worry, you know, maybe it is, set aside a time. You know, set aside a time during the day. Give yourself 15 minutes, half hour, whatever you feel you need. Set that time aside and do your worrying then. Sit down, worry yourself. You know, do it uh, well. Focus on it. Don't, you know, but then be done with it. When, when that half hour is done, if you find yourself worried, say, no, I'll do that tomorrow at 7.30. I'm not going to do it now. It's remarkably helpful for people to get them to just stop that ruminative. You know, we know that that's really uh, related to feeling miserable when you're just ruminating and worrying all the time. So we really encourage people, just set aside a time, uh, do your worrying, get it out of the way, and then go on with things. Um, and it's, it, it sounds a little silly, but it's actually quite a powerful... Uh, people then really need to remind themselves and say, stop when they're doing, you know, I'm going to do, do this worrying thing uh, at a later time. But it, it, it can be really helpful. But there are many times people just worry about things that are, you know, I worry about this government all the time. And there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I'm almost not too politically active, but, you, you know, I, I can't change it. And so it, it, it bothers me. I'm telling you, it bothers me. You know, so there are many things that we can't change, unfortunately, that, you know, are on our minds. So those are the times, right, when you can resolve the issue, it's much better to resolve it. That's a really good point. I didn't say that. So thanks for bringing it up. You know, this is kind of for those things that you can't really resolve that are in your mind. That, yeah, that is possible. Right, right. Yeah, you know, one thing I like to tell people is that just because you feel anxious doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. So that that's what people think. And so, you know, a really good example of it, uh, how many of you here have lived through an earthquake? 
so you know what happens. There's an earthquake, and then what does the news focus on night and day? Earthquakes. That's all you hear about. You hear about the possibility of, you know, you walk around. I remember I was at, uh, I was working at San Francisco General Hospital during the, the uh, big earthquake there, and, you know, we would be in meetings after that, and somebody would say, did you feel that? You know, we're all, like, totally anxious about earthquakes, right? Uh, an earth, is another earthquake more likely to happen right after one? No, they're not. We just feel anxious. We feel anxious about earthquakes, so then we think they're going to happen. And, we, you know, it's hard to get it out of your mind. So a really important thing to tell people is just because you're anxious doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. So when you know your anxiety is, is ramping up over something, uh, it, you know, it's important to tell yourself it doesn't mean something bad is going to happen at all. It just means you're anxious. That can be very helpful for anxious people to just remind themselves, you know, just feeling anxious doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. We, we, again, we really encourage people, I encourage everyone to do uh, more pleasant activities. Boy, uh, I'm t telling you, life is short. You know, I'm getting old, and it happened really quickly. I was just a young person not that long ago. So I say we should all have a fair amount of fun in our lives. And um, so we like to encourage people to do activities in different categories. So uh, one thing that we all enjoy is self-care. Um, so. You know, taking, I love taking a nice hot shower. It's hard for me to get out of it. Um, getting to sleep, getting a good night's sleep uh, is a real, really good one. Um, paying your bills, uh, doing your hair, you know, it, um, dressing nicely, any of those things that you can care for yourself, those are good things that we should all be doing. Um, cooking for yourself is a great thing. Uh, fun activities that are just pleasurable. Uh, going for a walk, listening to music, uh, food. I loved uh, a good meal out or to cook a good meal. Um, the the thing about fun activities is is you have to kind of space them out. You, you know, I, I love a good meal, but I can't eat 12 in, a, in one day. So um, so fun activities are great to have in there. Um, things that you don't have a purpose, they're just fun. Uh, learning activities, I think we all feel good. There's evidence that uh, that you're less likely to get demented as you age if you're learning things, learning a new language. And today, learning is so available uh, to everyone. You can go to the library and sign on to a million online programs, and um, there are a lot of these MOOC classes that are free. There's just so many ways uh, to learn something that I think... Uh, you know, reading, um, practicing your skills, your CBT skills, anything that you're learning is, is really great. Um, and then, you know, it's really important for all of us to engage in meaningful activities, something that makes us feel like it's important, that we're connected with our community, that we're contributing, that we're doing something important. So th those are, uh, are super important to get in our lives. And that's oftentimes when people get depressed is when they've lost that meaning in their lives. They're, they, um, they really um, are, um, you know, may, maybe we're a parent and their kids all graduated from high school, although mine just keep hanging around. I don't know. That seems to be the next problem, right? These millennials, we can't get rid of them. But, uh, 
I love my cats, but honestly, you know, they they uh, they need to grow up. But uh, it, it, there there are many ways that we can we can lose this sense of meaning in our lives. Uh, you know, there are these. So being in a good mood is not the uh, exact opposite of depression. But when we look at at um, happiness in the world, there have been a number of studies. Uh, how important do you think uh, money is for happiness? Not. You, you know, it's so interesting. It, it, it is important up to when you have the basics. You know, if you don't have a roof over your head and don't know how to feed your kids, you're miserable. So, but, but once you get to the, that basic level of comfort, money has nothing to do with happiness when we look around the world. Uh, what are the things that anybody want to guess? What does have to do with happiness? Purpose in life, huge. What else? Connection with the community, yeah. Those are the, the two big things. And exercise, actually. People are happier with it move around. Uh, when, yeah, yeah, you can certainly buy fun activities, uh, but there are lots of fun activities that are totally um, uh, not dependent on money. And uh, in our manuals, we actually list tons of those. Like in LA, is it the first Wednesday of the month or Thursday, all the museums are free. They're, the, you know, the beach is pretty free. Certainly, uh, if you have resources, there are more pleasant activities open to you, right? Everyone would agree that. The, the more, more resources, uh, more really fun things you can do, I think that is undeniable. Um, but on the other hand, it's also true that there are many things, you know, again, when you look throughout the world, money isn't related to happiness. And people in very poor cultures, you know, do things, have family meals, do things that are very pleasant. So um, I, I agree they're less open to you, but they're really meaningful, pleasant activities open to us without resources. So if you look at, you know, um, Mexican-American... I'll get you in just a second. Mexican-American immigrants who come to the U.S. have much lower rates of depression. One uh, generation, and they actually equal people in the U.S. The same with Asian immigrants. And so, you know, there's something about our culture that isn't so good for your mental health. You see rates of, and it, it, the thought is that it's the money-driven culture that we have, that it actually doesn't lead. And if you look in the U.S. at depression, so if you live in, in absolute poverty, which what we define is really quite poor in the U.S., you do have higher rates of depression, but after that, it's not related to income. So, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. You know, we, we really try to get people to sort of uh, balance their responsibility with fun. So, you know, I think that's just saying that, you know, you can't just be having fun all the time. We definitely agree with that, but it's really important to build some really pleasant things in your life to keep your mood up. It's just uh, too hard to be, uh, you know, at that grind all the time. And um, so for everyone, I think we need to encourage them to, to have, it's a balancing act, that, you know, and, and to have, take some time for yourself and to do nice things for yourself. Those are those are really really important things. And I think it's not something uh, um, moms particularly. I swear we're you know taught to um, maybe maybe men in other ways. You, you men speak up, but I, I think moms are taught to take care of everyone else before ourselves. 
you know, uh, which is not good. And I always tell uh, moms who feel like that, if you're in an airplane and they, they, when they come and they tell you if the oxygen mask uh, falls down, you know, put yours on before you put someone else's on because you're not very much help lying on the floor. And I, I think, you know, we, uh, we I, I'm Latina, I think we, Latinos are not overall taught to take care of themselves. And yet it's a really important thing, particularly if we uh, want to take care of others. So now I'll talk specifically about anxiety disorders. So all those uh, techniques are helpful um, in any way. And so we'll talk specifically about anxiety disorders, whether excessive fear and uh, almost always avoidance. So when people feel anxious about something, they avoid it. And it may be, uh, it, it may be avoid thinking about something, right? That can be one avoidance. Um, so so um, excessive fear and avoidance, um, it's actually, anxiety disorders are more prevalent than mood disorders. They have a large impact on functional impairment and a, a substantial negative impact on quality of life. So, um, so what are the specific things we do for, for PTSD? We're, we're really good at P, treating PTSD when it is one incident, like a rape. Or, uh, we're less successful when it's ongoing, like somebody's been through four years of war. Um, but treatment consists of three components. One, teaching people about fear anxiety, and anxiety, that it's you know getting them to understand that when they feel anxious, their body feels it. Uh, and then controlled exposure to the traumatic event. And it can be in vivo now. There are these wonderful, um, uh, which is in person, or it can be done through uh, technology. So um, it, you know, you can you can play a scene for someone or something and, and help them get exposed to it. Um, and then we restructure the the maladaptive reasoning. You know, just because I was attacked once doesn't mean I'm going to be attacked again. There are ways I can keep myself safe, other than knowing I'm all vulnerable. Uh, panic disorder. Um, People have a major panic attack. We really, again, we educate them about the physiology. We modify. So they, when they start having these physiological reactions, what do they think? Oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying. You know, I'm, I'm going to die from this. So we say, Oh no, this is your body being anxious. This is, you feel dizzy. You feel weak. You can feel palpitations. You could hurt in your chest. And we gradually expose them to bodily symptoms. So I literally sat with somebody and say, let's start breathing rapidly. And we do it together until you start feeling a little lightheaded, and then we slow it down. And they realize when they slow down their breathing and calm, calm themselves, they can stop the panic. Um, and uh, it's much more effective than relaxation training, which is what we used to do when you do this uh, exposure. Um, almost 78% of people get symptom-free, which is amazing. Uh, specific phobias, we do grad, gradual exposure. So the whole thing is talking somebody into it. That is the, with exposure, that's, you know, the tough thing you have to talk someone into being willing to do. I, I treated uh, a patient with agoraphobia. His treatment plan was to lie into bed, bed and relax enough that he felt better. You know, this treatment plan didn't work for me. He had to get up and get out of the house. So, um, so I really had to work with him around the cognitions, the belief that uh, that resting more would help him, 
and then you want gradual exposure. And I like to do, I like to have people um, I do a relaxation for people and then slowly think a little bit about the scary thing and then more and more um, until they uh, have been exposed. And once you're exposed a few times and you realize the world doesn't uh, fall apart, um, people uh, really calm down around uh, phobias. So uh, social phobias are really common and debilitating. We love to treat these in adolescence so it doesn't go on forever. Uh, we challenge the beliefs about, so people who are anxious, so this is, I have a patient right now I'm treating who has uh, social anxiety, and she believes she's totally incompetent because she gets a lot of negative feedback. Why do you think she gets a lot of negative feedback? She's so anxious, she's a wreck. You know, she's so socially anxious. She's not that much, you know, you, she has trouble talking, she, so she doesn't get good feedback. So. We, you know, we've convinced her there's nothing really wrong with her social competence. It's just that the anxiety gets in the way. And we're slowly um, getting her not to have such a negative self-evaluation and to go out and slowly expose herself. And we're having her pretend that she's not anxious. That sounds silly, but it actually really works. I, I had speech anxiety uh, when I... And you see I'm having that blast up here now. I don't have it anymore. I had terrible speech anxiety. Um, when I first taught, when I was um, in graduate school, I, I taught in a big course. And I literally threw up the morning before the first talk. I was so anxious. And I was standing behind the podium uh, shaking. And people told me, uh, imagine your audience knew that was useless to me. It was very distracting. Uh, <laughs> and... and um, you know, or look over the heads, that's not very helpful. And then somebody said, just pretend you're not anxious. So I walked right out to the class. I looked at people, even though I was shaking. And I did that a few times, and I became relaxed. And uh, it really worked. So you encourage people to just uh, fake it until you make it. So if you can get them. So I have my patient practice wearing something she feels good in, you know, walking up to someone saying something in a very comfortable way, and um, she's more and more able to do that. Obsessive compulsive disorder, really debilitating uh, disorders where people you know, can't stop doing something. Um, we, uh, again, it's exposure. So you want to expose them to not checking the locks on the door. So uh, you know, you, somebody has to sit with them at night and get them not to do it and go to bed. And you do a few nights, you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and realize it was actually locked and you quit uh, worrying so much. So uh, it's putting them in the situation, you know, touching something and then not washing their hands for a while. Um, so exposure, exposure and stopping the thing that uh, calms them down uh, is highly effective. So uh, let's talk about treatment of suicide. Yeah, you know, this is so important. Who, do you know that the second leading cause of death among young people in the U.S. now is suicide? The second leading cause of death, right after voter accidents. I mean, it's terrible. And in fact, they're going down and suicide is going up. Um, so it, it's um, particularly important. And, the thing that's been shown that has an evidence base uh, for suicide is really uh, dialectic behavior therapy, which is a, a kind of branch of CBT that combines a behavioral component, cognitive component, and supportive therapy. Um, and it's weekly. It's real, 
it's really intense, but wanting to kill yourself is intense. You know, we see really sick, we run a clinic here for suicidal adolescents, and these kids are very sick. So we see them less than a year, but we see them weekly in both group and individual um, therapy. A meta-analysis of suicide study found that DBT is high, uh, highly significant for reducing suicidal behaviors, and it really helps people build a life that's worth living. Uh, it's been shown to be effective in adults and adolescents. Um, individual is, um, is really important. Uh, adding group is important, but group alone doesn't work, so it really looks like both are helpful. And it uh, lowers suicidal thoughts, plans, and behaviors um, over at least a year. So it's a directive problem-oriented technique. Uh, so when you're troubled, we teach people there are three things you can do about it. You can problem solve, you can change the way you feel, or you can just stay miserable. So, uh, so you know, rather than just walking around miserable, we encourage people to think, you know, you have those opportunities. Can you either problem solve or change the way you feel? So we talk about radical acceptance. Um, you know, there's some things we can't change, and uh, they can completely ruin the rest of your life unless you figure out a way to get past them. Um, so radical acceptance. I, I too work internationally. Um, I work with uh, young women who have been trafficked, many of them, in Uganda. And when, when uh, our intervention, we start with radical acceptance. And we basically say, you know, things have happened to you that should never, ever happen to anyone. And we're so sorry that they did. But given that they did, you now have a choice to let that completely affect the rest of your life or move past it, you know? And, um, and amazingly, these young women are very resilient and they choose to move past it, uh, to not let that thing hold them back. So then we give them behavioral skills training, um, cognitive skills training, and exposure to emotional cues and help them um, tolerate negative feelings. Sometimes we just have to set with some negativity. So there's a balance of sort of supportiveness, reflection, empathy, and acceptance. The goals of DBT are teaching uh, how to manage emotional trauma and turmoil. So we use interpersonal skills. So we teach people how to deal better with others. You know, it's so interesting. When, when we have a conflict with someone, we almost always start um, defending ourselves, right? Isn't that our first, when somebody's mad at you, don't you feel like defending yourself? You know, what, what you really want to do, and we you teach this, and for our adolescents, we bring our adolescents in and the parents are all there, and we say, the first thing you need to do is validate the other person's feelings. I understand why you feel so, you know, unhappy about this. I totally understand it. Before you start talking about your side of things. So we teach really interpersonal skills like validating, uh, how to listen to others, uh, how to ask for what you want. And then we teach uh, distress tolerance and reality acceptance skills. That sometimes um, you, uh, well, I want to go back to interpersonal skills. Again, um, you know, one of the things that we do is this idea, again, of encouraging people to kind of fake it till they make it when they're struggling with someone. I had a very interesting experience. A couple of years ago, I was assigned one of the third-year residents to do research with me for the year. 
And I don't know why. Like the first day she walked into my office, she rubbed me wrong. I was like, Bleh. and I pretty soon I started noticing every time I saw I had to see her every week. I see her name on my schedule for the day and kind of go, I'm gonna have to sit with her for It's not gonna go well. No, I wasn't really happy about having to deal with her. I thought about trying to switch. And then I thought, okay, use your skills. You teach this stuff, use it. So I'm going to pretend I like her. I'm going to act like I like her. And I started pretending, you know, she came in, and I, I started pretending like I really liked her. And, you know, very quickly, I did like her. Isn't that weird? But I did. So whatever cues I was giving off of not really liking her, even though I was trying to hide it, was making her, you know, behave in ways that weren't very pleasant. And once... I started, thanks Rosie, once I started just pretending like I liked her, you know, I started liking, we had a great year together. I would have never believed it, but, um, so, so um, we, we, we teach those skills. We also teach distress tolerance, which is when bad things happen to you, don't do the thing that makes it worse, which is right, right what we often do. So we often teach people when you're really distressed, we say, do the opposite action. Do the opposite of what you feel like doing. Um, so um, I, I had an experience. I was traveling with my granddaughter, and we flew into Denver, and we're catching a flight uh, here from the East Coast. And we, uh, our flight got delayed and delayed and delayed, and I had a Nancy six-year-old with me, you know, I'm not, so I had really had a strong urge to yell at somebody, and I'm like, oh, you know, that would have been so bad, so I actually uh, went up to the um, the desk and said, you know, I, I hear everybody's yelling at you, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm just wondering, is this going to just keep being delayed, should we go get a hotel room, what do you think, and she said, Oh, a flight opened up on another, uh, a, a two seats, I'm going to give it to you. You know, uh, uh, right? Had I yelled at her, do you think I'd have those two seats? I would have been sitting in that airport. So, you know, it's really teaching people when you're in a bad mood, don't let yourself do the thing that makes it worse. You know, and oftentimes it means doing just the opposite of kind of what you feel like. So have people think through, you know, is it worth, what, what is your goal at the end? Do you want to preserve a relationship? Do you want, so, so really thinking about tolerating distress and not uh, doing the wrong thing. And then we teach people ways to, um, to regulate their emotions a little bit through the way they're thinking, helping people really be aware What's the thing that makes you get most out of control? For me, it's being hungry. I, I, I have hangry like anything. I, if I'm being bitchy, I just go get something to eat, you know? I really, I can't tolerate being hungry. So, um, you know, we all need to, to know how to help regulate our own emotions. So, um, those are the basics. It's wonderful. Thank you so much.